All right, so the Feast of Tabernacles, what we're going to talk about here is just a little bit about what it is here tonight. Um, we're going to kind of attach Jesus to it more later. You're going to kind of see how he fulfilled it. Right now, for tonight, I'm just going to give you a little bit to kind of describe what it is, why it's called what it is, that type of thing. And you can again read about these festivals in Leviticus 23, here specifically in verse 43 about tabernacles, it says that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so this booths is this Sukkot, this sukkah that we live in or basically camp out in. And so a lot of times in a Jewish home, they're just going to eat their meals and spend time and fellowship in their sukkah. And they will attach it to their house or their garage or that type of thing. And so we are really roughing it with a lot of people having campers and that type of thing. But uh, nonetheless, we are out of our homes and um, that's what we're going to be doing. So it is a week-long festival, seven days, but it's got an eighth day attached to it, which we'll talk about later. But bottom line is it's to celebrate God's deliverance out of Egypt. And then when God would begin to dwell with them throughout the wilderness there and protect them. And so when you go and live in a sukkah, part of it is, is trusting the Lord. That you, you're not living in a walled city, you're not living in a walled house, but that you have to trust Him to take care and provide for you. That He is your protection. And so that's also a, a part of it, that they would trust Him when they lived in booths when they were wandering out there in the wilderness. Now... It starts on Tishri 15, basically the 15th of the lunar calendar of the Jewish month of Tishri here. Now, it's called the Feast of Nations as well. So just like we have different names, you know, where they call Rosh Hashanah for Feast of Trumpets, likewise, Sukkot is also called the Feast of Ingathering. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Feast of Ingathering and Feast of Nations. Feast of Nations because there are... This is the one festival where even Gentiles get to be invited in. Normally, a Jew will not eat with a Gentile. But if you go to Israel, you could actually be invited in to a Jewish sukkah at this time. We talked about the Feast of, or the Day of Atonement, where the Day of Atonement, people are welcomed back if they repent. But here, a Gentile can be welcomed into your sukkah. In essence, that a Gentile can tabernacle with God too. So the whole picture of Gentiles coming into the church should not have shocked the early church because it was prophesied in the book of Hosea. It was prophesied in their festival all over the place. And this is one way of many that it was prophesied. Now, there are 70 nations. Uh, typically, the Jews will say that when the Tower of Babel happened, that the nations went into 70 different nations, and that's where we got all the languages and so on. But because of that as well, there are 70 bulls sacrificed on this day. So quite a busy time. We read in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, 
I like that, that you can actually obey unrighteousness. As we've talked about before, you're obeying somebody. You're either obeying God, and if you're not obeying God, you are automatically obeying the devil. Obedient to unrighteousness. And it says, um, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. So there is not only redemption for the Jew, but there's also judgment for the Jew, just as there is for the Gentile. Now, as I've said in past messages, we are Jews. Spiritually, we have been grafted in. Now, there still is a difference between a Jew and a Gentile in some way. I don't know what you know that is or how God does it. There is a difference, but we are the ones grafted in. Romans might put it this way as far as that difference goes. There's the natural branches and there's the unnatural ones. We are the unnatural ones that are grafted in. But when we are grafted into that tree, you become part of that tree. If you're grafted into an apple tree, you are an apple branch, not an orange branch. Okay. So uh, we see Romans 11.15 here. For if their rejection, speaking of the Jews, is the reconciliation of the world, what? Their rejection? And a lot of people look at this and say, well, God rejected the Jews. No, he didn't. He, They rejected him. And because they rejected him, his hands are tied. And he said, all right, if the gospel, if you refuse the gospel, then I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. Now, that was God's plan the whole time. He says that God has handed all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all. And so it is written, all Israel will be saved. Don't forget that many Gentiles are Jews. And I'm not talking spiritual Jews here. Because remember the prophecy way back in Genesis chapter 48, verse 19, it said Ephraim will become a multitude of Goyim, a multitude of Gentiles, a multitude of nations. And so we see later the ten tribes of Ephraim are scattered all around the world. We're going to talk about that a little bit later because the, the Assyrians came, captured them, and scattered them all over the place. They became assimilated into the world. And many of them became Gentiles, known as Gentiles, sometimes called the lost sheep of Israel. Now again, I am not saying that every Gentile is one of those lost sheep of Israel. But I am saying many are. We don't know who all of them are. But it says if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, they were, in a sense, rejected, as we've talked about, but not forever. God says that there is a day coming when they will see and weep and mourn for the one that they have pierced. So, there's a day coming that they will be accepted back in again. And what does that mean for us? More, right? It's like, well, if reconciliation came to us by their rejection... 
acceptance of them is going to be life from the dead. That sounds to me like the resurrection. To me, I see this as a timing picture as well. That when the Jew comes back to understand Yeshua was Messiah, that's when he comes back. That's when you're going to see a resurrection of the dead. That's when life is going to be given. And I believe that is at this time of year during these type of festivals. We'll talk more about that as we go on. So uh, anyway, just some a little bit of background, but I, I love this fact that you're already saved. For if their rejection is reconciliation, you've been saved, you've been reconciled to God, that's not the end of the story. There's more to come. We should be praying that these Jews come to know Yeshua as Messiah. We should be witnessing to them so that we can have life from the dead, so that the story can be finished. We can get to the last chapter. Don't be satisfied. Yep, I've been reconciled. Now let me go live my life. No, let's get the book done. Yes, when we when Jesus says pray for the peace of Jerusalem, so many people think that it's oh you know we just want to stop the bombing and the rockets coming in. No, true peace is for them to know their Messiah. That's true peace. Well, Ephraim, yes, Ephraim is kind of not the, the ten tribes, but yet sometimes all ten tribes were called Ephraim in Scripture, and so they became known as that. And so those ten tribes were all kind of scattered out. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, because I should have clarified that. But yeah. So sometimes Ephraim just means the tribe of Ephraim. And other times in Scripture we see Ephraim became known as the ten tribes, just like Judah became known as the two tribes later as well. The northern tribes of Ephraim, the southern tribes of Judah. So... So anyway, we've kind of gone over this before, but just to remind you where we are, uh, since this is unfamiliar to many people, is really we have the Feast of Trumpets that started on the first of the month. Ten days later, after the ten days of awe are done, we had atonement. Five days after that is tabernacles, and that's where we are ready to celebrate. So I want to show you that this sukkah, that... It's more than just us being protected. There's some other pictures here, and that is that God is going to be our sukkah, our protection, that we look to Him. It says this in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5, that in essence, He's going to become a sukkah over Jerusalem, a protection, a canopy over us. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And by that, I think those who are alive in Christ. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. I got news for you. Before things get better in Israel, they're going to get worse. Go read this, the, the whole thing. And in Zechariah and other places, we see that it's going to get a lot worse for the Jews in Israel yet because it's not really a godly place at this time. And God is going to have to cleanse it. And he's going to cleanse it by a spirit of judgment, a spirit of fire. Then things are going to get better. It says, then the Lord will create over all the Mount Zion, which is basically 
the Dome of the Rock for the most part. And over those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. So, sound familiar? That's kind of what he did in Exodus. After he delivered them out of Egypt, he led them in a cloud of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day. That was a picture. Don't just look at that as history only. Look at that as prophetic. Because it's going to happen again, that God is going to be there to protect you, to be perhaps even that wall between the symbolic, allegorical Egyptians, the world, the ungodly, and you. I think we might be taken there, yes. We, I'm not going to, for the sake of time tonight, but we can do this another time, but I will I'll give you a quick answer. We have all this talk about a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, rapture, all of that. We have a very strange view of what the rapture is that doesn't really tie biblically well. Because we have this idea that, boom, the rapture, and we're, it's done, we're in heaven, and it's not it. We're only caught up to the clouds, not to heaven. And I believe that we are then carried and set down and put back to Jerusalem. Because there's still the whole millennial reign, that all of those other things that go on. So are you just going to hang out in the clouds for a thousand years, or what are you doing? Anything we believe in the New Testament must have Old Testament backing. You take the modern Christian view of the rapture and find that in the Old Testament. It's not there. The only thing you can find are allegories like Lot was taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Enoch was taken up. But I don't believe that that is talking about the uh, rapture. Instead, I could probably show you 50 verses in the Old Testament talking about in the end times where God will gather from the four winds, gather the elect, gather the lost tribes, unite them together, and where do they all go? It's always to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. We're going to see some of that tonight here. We'll, we'll look at a couple of verses. And so I kind of tend to think that more Jewish understanding of a rapture is more accurate. So... Um, Moving on here, uh, Exodus 23, talking about living in these booths, that there were three festivals that you would come to Jerusalem. The three were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is connected with Passover. So Passover, then First Fruits, or not First Fruits, uh, Pentecost, which is 50 days later, and now the Feast of Tabernacles. You were supposed to go to Jerusalem. Now, isn't that convenient? Because what I just explained to you is where does God gather you to? Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And here, I think there's a reason you were supposed to go to Jerusalem. Okay? So, three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Okay? 
That is in the spring at Passover, and that is at the barley harvest. It says, Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in that thou cast out from Egypt, or they came out of Egypt. And none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, and the feast of harvest, just like we have different names here, that's Pentecost, and that is the wheat harvest, 50 days later, which thou hast sown in the field, and the Feast of Ingathering. And here's another reason it's called the Feast of Ingathering. Not only to gather the nations, but the gathering of the nations is symbolically portrayed by the gathering of the fruit. And so this is the fruit harvest, the grape harvest. So, three harvest times. All three harvests, you go to Jerusalem. The barley, the wheat, and the fruit. And it says that at this ingathering, remember, he's going to be that sukkah, that canopy over us. He talks about when thou hast gathered in thy laborers out of the field. We're going to see harvest is a symbol all the time of God harvesting people. And so there's a reason that this kind of stuff is talked about. Remember, Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray then to the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers out into the harvest field. So all three at harvest. What's interesting is just the way that things are harvested. Barley, which is Passover, wheat at Pentecost and grape at Tabernacles. Barley is winnowed. You basically take and you throw it up in the air and the wind just kind of blows it away. And the chaff does, you know. The, the wheat is more crushed. Or maybe crushed isn't the right word, but beaten. You kind of would kind of smack it around a little bit. And then the, the wheat comes out of the, the little, the kernel of wheat comes out of the chaff, you might say. And then the grapes, the grapes were crushed and trampled upon. There is a reason that the grape harvest is a picture of the end times because what do we see that when the Lord comes back, he tramples on them. And we see the blood will be as high as the horse's bridle according to Revelation. And that verbiage is used all the time about trampling in judgment in the harvest. And so the other two were kind of a, a beating, a refining, but this last one is a crushing. Here it says, and another angel came out of the temple here in Revelation chapter 14. Now we're in Revelation, we're talking about the end of the world. It says, this another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle, he's harvesting and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. What I want you to notice is that there are two harvests here. 
happening at the same time, but two angels. The first one goes and harvests, but it doesn't say what happens to them. Can I make a suggestion of what I think it is? Is that's the harvest of the righteous. And then where do they do? They are taken to Jerusalem, to the barn. If you remember the parable that Jesus talked about. Then you have the second angel coming with the sickle and they go after the grapes that are going to be crushed or rather those that would be burned later. So just notice that too. Um, it's significant though that we're talking about the end of the world and it's clearly talking about the grape harvest. That seems to me to be just one more evidence of many that the Lord's coming back at the grape harvest, which is now, which is the fall festivals. Now, I'm not saying it has to be on this day or anything. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the fall festival period. We see Matthew 13, when Jesus talks about the parables, he uses the same examples, the same verbiages. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. Well, here in Revelation, he's explaining that to you. Look at Isaiah 24, 13 and see the consistency that we have here. So will it be on the earth among the nations, as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest, they raise their voices, they shout for joy from the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. What's supposed to happen at the grape harvest? When the gleanings are left, there's going to be rejoicing, voices shouting. Guess what we're supposed to do at this festival? Rejoice. Jeremiah 25, 30, the Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword. Remember Revelation I believe chapter 5, where we see, or at least the fifth seal, we see the saints at the throne crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Let me tell you, when judgment comes, we're going to be celebrating. We will be. There will be shouts of deliverance. A song of Moses or Miriam, as we saw when they were delivered in the Exodus. The Egyptians were destroyed. What did they do? They celebrated. They praised God. We see Joel, same thing. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. So what we're seeing is once again at the grape harvest and it's people we're talking about. So, a couple of other things here and kind of getting to close out. Pentecost. I want to show you that Israel reached Mount Sinai on Pentecost. I'm not going to get into show you how we can see that that is the right timing from when they left, crossed the Red Sea, they get to Mount Sinai. It would have been the time of Pentecost. Remember, they left at Passover. 
So not only are these festivals significant in Jesus' day, significant at end times, they were significant <coughs> at the beginning too. And so it's at Pentecost that Israel reaches Mount Sinai. Now, by the way, do you know what happens on Pentecost in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai? 3,000 people die because of disobedience. In Jesus' day, 3,000 people are saved. The Day of Atonement comes again after Pentecost. Later we see the Day of Atonement. We see the timing. They reach Mount Sinai. They're there for a little bit. Moses goes up the mountain. He's there for 40 days. He comes back down. He sees that they made a golden calf. Then he goes back up. He's there 40 more days. And then he comes back down. And we see that the Jew, Jewish tradition is that it was on the Day of Atonement that that happened. Yeah. Because, again, they arrive there, but then they don't receive the Ten Commandments right away. And then you got 80, 90 days, at least three months, of Moses going up and down, then, basically. So, what we end up seeing is that regardless of that timing and regardless of their if they're right or not with their tradition, it is interesting. We see the same thing happening. Atonement was made for them. Moses went, came down, and God was ready to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes for them and says, don't blot me out of the book of life first. He stepped in to be that mediator and forgiveness was given. Remember that it was prophesied there would be one like Moses who would come. That one like Moses is Yeshua, Jesus, who then brings atonement. And as we said last time, when Jesus comes back, it's at this time where we're going to have the festival of, you know, tabernacles, atonement, and trumpets, that atonement is finally carried out completely. That might mean judgment for some and deliverance for others. And then tabernacles, when Moses came down, he brought the blueprints for the tabernacle, and shortly after then they, they start building the tabernacle. Why? Well, in Exodus 25, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. It was always God's plan for him to dwell with them. So, he says, build a tabernacle so I can be with them, so that I can watch over, so that I can protect, so that I will live with them. That's the old. In the new, what happens? Well, we become the tabernacle. Yeshua builds us up. He gives us His Spirit. He cleanses us. He makes us holy so that we are that tabernacle. So, just kind of an interesting thing. Let me just kind of put it this way. Pentecost. As I said, the Holy Spirit is given. Then we see the tablets. When Moses goes up the first time, God cut out the stone tablets. God, with his finger, wrote on those tablets. <laughs> Moses comes down the mountain. Don't forget Moses is a type of Christ. What happens on his first coming? The people are not ready. They have rejected Moses. And so the law is broken. The commandments are broke. 
because it was the commandments of stone and it was not in the hearts of the people. Moses goes back up the mountain. This time God says, you, Moses, make the stones. I will write on it. So man-made stones, God-written commandments. When Jesus comes back then, the second time, we see that the people are going to be ready, some of them obviously, and now the, the, the commandments have been taken to stone and have been put in our hearts. That this, it, it isn't that now that they have to do these things, they're not obligated, but now the second coming, they want to. They want to obey God. And what do we see happening after the second time? We see they need stuff for the tabernacle, and they give so much that they don't need it. Right? Because they're willingly to give from their hearts. And that's the difference of the law. Why I think there's a picture there of two different times. The first one, it was an obligation. God is giving you these commandments but the spirit wasn't there, the heart wasn't there to follow it. The second time, the people are ready. And when Yeshua comes back, it's even more so. On his second coming, not only is it already in our hearts, but he is now going to take us to Mount Zion, and we're going to talk about this on a later evening, and he is going to have the law go out from Mount Zion. We now have the law in our hearts. The law is on us, not on some insignificant stone. It's in you. You are the tablets. You are what gives the word to the people today. And so now that you are the tablet, when he comes back, he's going to reclaim what's his. So I, I just I like that picture. Second Chronicles 7, 1, just to show you, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but when Solomon dedicates the temple, guess when it is? Right now, the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm not going to, like I said, you can go read this in 2 Chronicles 7 yourself, but what I want you to see is that when you get to verse 9, well, I'm going to go to verse 8. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days. This is how long this festival is. But there's an eighth day added on to it. We'll talk about that on another evening. All Israel with him, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And then it says, and on the eighth day they held a sacred assembly. For they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days on the 23rd day of the seventh month. That's the end of this festival. So the Bible tells us there's no question. This isn't just tradition. Solomon dedicated the temple on this festival. I think since we are now the temple on that eighth day, we are then God, God's temple like fulfilled. And that's when we're going to see that he will dwell with us in the way we're all waiting for. So very significant.
Um, here we see Zechariah 14, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. Again, this is an end time. Go look at Zechariah 14, talking about end times. Nothing in the past, future here. He'll fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet will stand on in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, basically split in two, east and west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain will go north, half south. It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. When he comes back and he takes us to Mount Zion, the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. And then there are going to be nations. Remember, he is a hoopah, he is a sukkah for us in Jerusalem. But that means there's still stuff going on in the rest of the world. In Egypt, elsewhere, and those people have to come up and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and if they don't, they don't get any rain. I don't understand all of that. I'm just telling you this is what Scripture's saying. We'll find out when it happens. But my point is, is this feast is important, and as we camp out, this is what we're remembering. God is going to be our protection. Someday, when the nations are gathered against Jerusalem, we don't need to fear because we're in a sukkah. We're safe. And that is a picture of what is to come. And it goes on. It shall be that whoever will not come up after all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that comes not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I love this because it's just like what Romans says, at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow. Even if they're not Christians, folks, they will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't be saved, but they will bow because he is king of kings, lord of lords, and he is in control of even the devil. The devil has no power over God. And that's what we're seeing here, and I love that about this festival. The heathen will celebrate this someday with us. Which is also the interesting aspect of the Feast of in gathering. This is the only feast that, what did I say? Gentiles, those ungodly, uncircumcised Philistines are welcomed into the sukkah. Why? Because they are going to have to celebrate it someday. That's what Scripture is telling us. It goes on, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Mount Olives has not been split in two, folks. This is not a past event. This is future. Like I said, I don't understand it all, but we'll understand more as we get there. And then here, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God 
is with men. This is Revelation 21. After all of these bad things are done, all of the trumpets, all of the seals, all of the vials, look what it says. The tabernacle of God is with men. That too is what we're celebrating. That that sukkah is only the temporary one. Eventually, the real thing forever and ever and ever will be there. And God will tabernacle with us. So that's what we're celebrating. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We too are a tabernacle. Why? Because God lives in us. We remember that as we celebrate. Not just the future things, but the present things. We are the temple. He lives in us. What a gift. What a beautiful gift. And we don't want to forget that. That's worth celebrating. And then we see 2 Peter 1, the last thing here. As long as I am in this tabernacle to stir up you, putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. That right now, this is the temporary one. There is an eternal one coming. So even these bodies, someday this tent, we are going to put off. But as I say, you know, if a bus... I run out on the road in a car or a big semi just nails me here out. Guess what, guys? My body is just toast now, but I am not. I am still alive. My tent has only been destroyed, but I live on forever. And so these are all some of the pictures of tabernacle that you need to focus. There's a lot there. It's not just one little thing. There's a lot. So that's going to be it for tonight.